Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan. Sunbury Press publishes print and electronic books under 10 different imprints in a variety of categories, sold worldwide wherever you can find books. This program is uh, one of the final in a series on the coronavirus pandemic in conjunction with Sunbury's recent release after the pandemic, Visions of Life, post-COVID-19. Our subject in this episode is COVID-19 Impacts on Arts and entertainment. We have two guests today. I will bring them in in turn. Cheryl Brooks is an author, speaker, educator, singer, among her many roles. She's written two books on Sunbury Press, including Chicken Bone Beach, a pictorial history of Atlantic City's Missouri Avenue Beach. Her contribution, how museums and galleries will adapt to the coronavirus. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Meryl Schaefer, a central Pennsylvania native. Schaefer works in law enforcement as a probation officer, and he is the author of A Super Steeler's Journey, the 23-year quest to honor Pittsburgh's dynasty legends. He has written the chapter, The Effects of the Coronavirus Pandemic on Sports. Meryl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tori. Good morning. All right. Well, first, let us begin with where each of you are and uh, how we are handling the current situation. Um, Cheryl, let us begin with you. Okay. Uh, I'm currently in Hummelstown, Pennsylvania. If that's where you, if that was the question, and yep. uh, I'm working remotely, uh, and I would say more like playing truant officer to my 17-year-old senior, not necessarily homeschooling directly, but monitoring his um, commitment to excellence. Um, Managing this virus for myself uh, initially started out stressful as I watched the world um, handle it. And in a short matter of weeks, Uh, I became acclimated to as many pieces of this change as I could. Uh, I I am a social butterfly, but hunkering down um, has been an easy transition for me. Okay. And, uh, well, let's see. Meryl, you are not too far away. Uh, You're just to the east of us over in Palmyra. How did it um, affect you, and how how are you handling things out there? Well, I, I have to say, you know, when, when things first, you know, kind of took off with the virus, you know, things seemed to be pretty abrupt when, it, when they happened. Um, you know, I do, I do work in law enforcement. I work it down in Lancaster County as a probation officer, and um, things just really kind of happened very quickly. I, I'm in the same boat as Cheryl. I'm also wor- working remotely from home at this point, um, and – you know, my wife and I both are doing so, and with our child um, kind of thrown in into, you know, kind of a daycare kind of setting, you know, teaching setting too with 
the schools being closed. I mean, all of that happened really quickly and all at one time. But we've been able to manage, uh, you know, we, we, we've been able to, you know, kind of keep the family unit together. Uh, we've certainly been monitoring the social distancing and things of that nature. Certainly miss being out and about, and, but certainly understand why um, some of the precautions were taken. Um, certainly, you know, my, my aspect in, you know, my chapter about sports kind of missing that aspect of life. But, you know, we, we certainly understand that, you know, certain things are going to have to take a backseat to, to health and, and safety at this point. But all in all, I think we're doing well. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all in the same geographic area. I live in Harrisburg, so uh, not that much different. And um, it is interesting to see. I'm uh, working in broadcasting for real. I am a uh, I'm considered an essential worker. So uh, while my weekend job uh, sent me off, um, I am out and about uh, pretty much five days a week. And I come out to uh, Lebanon County, as a matter of fact, fairly often. And for me, it's kind of interesting because I, I don't have the option or the luxury to work from home. I have to physically go to my places. And well, if I could have my way, I wouldn't leave. And it's not because of the pandemic, but because I rather don't mind being home <laughs> and um it it's been a thing it's been a little different to spend my weekends at home because a lot of my work was weekends and i couldn't remember the last time i had a weekend off and where i and where i could stay home and i know my cats were sort of looking at me funny wondering why the human wasn't leaving but but other than that um it's it's been interesting because i've uh, I have to take the same precautions as anyone else does. I mask up when I go out, and uh, trying to work social distance in broadcasting in some places is not easy, but you do the best you can with it, and you just remain mindful of that and keeping yourself together. And uh, that's been one thing. I have also uh, been making the best use of my time at home with writing and just sort of taking care of the house and that sort of thing, and it's been very nice that way, and I've been cooking a lot more. But I guess the main thing was, my traveling about is you're seeing things quiet down a little bit with the exception of the truck traffic and the commercial traffic. You're seeing a lot less vehicular traffic, a lot less pedestrian traffic, but it is starting to come back a little bit. Um, let me ask each of you as we talk about this, um, are you seeing perhaps Cheryl with you? Are you seeing your neighbors starting to come out a little bit more? Are you seeing uh, people feeling maybe a little bit better about that? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of people in my neighborhood who are walking, uh, jogging, um, playing tennis, shooting hoops. It's almost, um, it's it's kind of refreshing actually to see so many more people involved in physical activity. It's almost as if we've, we've, reverse time in some ways and are starting to embrace the simple things of life. At the mm-hmm. same time, um, as I went out this morning to get new tires, I'm a little apprehensive when I see, I think, uh, um, with with most of the state of Pennsylvania moving to the yellow phase, people are kind of moving a little too fast for me. So I noticed that some of us were wearing masks, some of us weren't. 
and I do understand the anticipation of finally being released and uh, wanting to get back to some degree of normalcy. I still feel a little cautious personally about just going back to typical norms. So I'm a little delighted to see people out. I'm a little concerned that they're still not practicing certain guidelines. Right. How about you, Meryl? What are you seeing out there? It's funny. As we speak, I'm seeing my neighbors out doing lawn work, you know, especially this time of year with the spring coming. You're, you're, it, it only seems natural that people would be getting out and about a little bit more. The other neighbor has actually a camper hooked up. And I, I've heard and in, in seen, especially on social media, people have been embracing that. They've been doing some camping and stuff like that. So I have seen more increased, you know, visibility with people outside and, and people going places. Um, I agree with Cheryl. You know, I, I, I'm hesitant to move a little bit too soon. Um, I, I will say most of the people I see, I, I don't know that I've really seen much of anybody who hasn't been wearing a mask while they've been out, which is good to see. I, I think people are, you know, certainly being cautious in that respect, especially in our neighborhood. So um, it's, it is nice to see, you know, with the weather starting to warm up, but, you know, again, seeing people out and doing some things, um, you know, I, you know, I agree. I, I just hope that, you know, as we move into these new phases that, you know, we don't look at, at a substantial increase in the number of cases that, that come about, but um, I guess we'll see that as we go, uh, how that works out. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing as well. It's it's interesting now. Other than my back and forth travel for work, I mean, I don't there's really no place else to go. So, uh other than going to the to the, the store maybe once a week as I've I have never changed that. That's just kind of how I always have worked. Um it was interesting. Uh you you're seeing I see probably 50-50 in terms of masks in recent weeks and living right here in the city i've noticed it's about half and half as well you see a lot of your your, your people out walking or running or, or going about and some have masks and some don't uh some of my neighbors on my block who i'm good friends with um most of them are keeping their distance they're being they're being good about it and then there's some other neighbors that are you know walking about without masks and you really can't say anything one way or the other. You kind of have to leave each person to make that decision for themselves. But I keep thinking, Ugh, you know, the I'm I'm myself. I because of my own health, I do have to be careful. I'm not terribly worried, but at the same time, I think my main worry right now is with the loosening of restrictions, which I think we kind of need uh, on a human level. I'm a little worried about the next couple of weeks because I, there could be another spike in cases, especially in other parts. But I, unfortunately, we just have to kind of wait and see at this time. Um, I need to get to this now. Um, the perspectives that each of us give are, are bringing with uh, the, the pieces that we have written. Um, I wanted to ask Cheryl about something that you wrote of in your piece about museums and galleries. Um, the virtual experience um, we are seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of uh, looking at, at like museums online and not just that, but you're seeing sports online. We're seeing films and that sort of thing. The virtual experience, there's a question I think you ask about a satisfying alternative to the in-person experience. I don't think so myself, but maybe you could go a little more in depth on that. Um, I think I... I'm recalling as I'm sort of browsing 
Um, I have noticed doing the research that during this time frame, many museums and galleries experienced a, a, a substantial increase in the amount of uh, visitors on their site. Um, and so although, and I think I said towards the end, it, you know, in one sense, it's being embraced, and it's being embraced in, in a, at a phenomenal rate. But that could very well stem from the fact that as a result of our confinement, we, we humans are just desperate for alternatives to keep ourselves entertained, amused, informed. But I also said in the article that for me personally, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, because if you're a person who actually enjoys visiting museums, that's a particular uh, group Mm -hmm. of people. If you're someone that really enjoys that experience, going to galleries and going to museums, you know, I said in the article that part of that comes from the fact that I can touch and feel and see, use use all my senses, if you will, Mm -hmm. to embrace that experience. So I truly feel that the museum experience is best served um, in person um, so that the, because the satisfying piece of it for a, an avid museum goer myself is to be present in that space. Um, mm-hmm. So I try to kind of talk on both sides and, um, and not say that, you know, Someday in the very near future, people will be satisfied with a virtual museum experience. Um, mm-hmm. But I do feel as though that door will widen um, and and be offered to experience it um, virtually is coming our way, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not something that just happened during this crisis. We are headed to a virtual experience of many cultural um, institutions such as museums and galleries. Right. Well, there's an article in the New York Times, uh, Robin Pogrebin, I don't know if I got her name right, but she was talking, uh, she's writing a story about how some museums are starting to reopen, but they're going with the precautions of the masks and that sort of thing. So there's the possibility of it coming back. Um, I'd like to bring Marilyn on this because you come from the sports perspective, and there's another place where the the in-person experience really is uh, the most uh, the most satisfying one um, with uh, arenas, ballparks, and stadiums empty. Um, I think you and I would recall that we'd only had seen this in the times of maybe a player strike, and then it would just seem very strange. This is very different these last few months to seeing these empty arenas and so forth. It, it certainly is. And, um, you know, again, with the NBA – and the NHL still in the midst of their seasons when this happened. Um, I, I, I think it was, you know, it was difficult for them to make that, that decision to, to shut things down. Um, they, I know both of those leagues have not yet completely canceled their seasons. And it, it does look like they're trying to take steps towards possibly 
resuming maybe with a playoff format at this point and foregoing the rest of the regular season. But it, it, it is different. I mean, even watching some of the events that have taken place, I, I've noticed that, you know, golf tournaments have started. Um, NASCAR has started. But there's just something missing with that human factor there with, with fans not being there. And it would be it will be interesting to see as as we go along if if some of these leagues do start to play, and there is not that element of the fans being in in the stadium. Um, that certainly is energy that the players themselves, I'm sure, feed off of. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. I'm no no professional athlete, but even at a you know at a little league level or something like that, you certainly have felt that in the past if you've played sports where. You know, there's just an energy that comes from people watching the games and, and cheering. And I, I just think that that will be a huge void there if that's not present. Um, you know, especially if we get into the fall, you know, obviously football is a very emotional sport, you know, when it comes to fan interaction and things of that nature. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds if if that does happen. Um, but certainly I think you're right that the human factor of, people being in the stands and just that energy that comes from that, that's certainly going to be missing. Well, having uh, worked in theater and uh, having played uh, in a band some years ago, it's, it's more fun. It's way more fun. And you feed off the same energy of an audience. If you've got a packed house, no matter the size of the theater, it's a great feeling. And when you have like a, you know, if, if you've got a small house, you still perform and you still play and you still give it your best shot for the few people that did come to see you. And sometimes it's it's uh, it's it's a little lonely sometimes when you're out there and you've you know, you don't hear that reaction. So I, I'm wondering how the players are handling that. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see if uh, the seasons do resume and how they're going to do it. Um, and, yeah, it's true. It's like start certain sports certain things and i think this ties into a question i have for cheryl uh my experience is with i'm not a soccer player but i do like the sport watching it on tv is one thing but being in a stadium surrounded by thousands of really amped up soccer fans and watching watching a very exciting sport is so much more fun um i guess my question for you cheryl is we're talking about people turning to the web more, looking into the virtual galleries and so forth. Um, How many of the museums and the like do you think were prepared for the kind of visitorship that they've suddenly gotten? Uh, uh, From my experience working in museums as well as um, focusing on museum studies in school, Mm -hmm. I think that there were it was easily a, a good 50% that had implemented some form of technology that would allow visitors to view many objects in archives and photos. Um, there was this push for digitization about the same time I, I graduated. So I had an intern, for example, at Hershey Story um, Museum, and I pretty much spent the bulk of my time digitizing photos. Um, mm. So I, that was 20, I'm going to say 14. So six years later, 
um, I'm pretty sure that um, that activity at a lot of museums began to increase. So the museum industry, they were, I believe, somewhat prepared um, for at least the imaging experience and uh, some were prepared for virtual tours, but I wouldn't say it was 100%. I think it varied by um, funding, you know, the museums that um, may have had more funding and grants to move in that direction had already begun to do certain things. And, again, it, it, it's a managerial decision um, for for CEOs of museums that or VPs that were visionary in the way of technology, um, begun to embrace it more because it was a part of their plan to become, a, you know, to develop a more technical presence. And it, it varied. It, I looked at articles um, for, for museums all the way from Paris, all the way in America, and it just it varied by country. Um, America wasn't ahead of the the, the the eighth ball on that. They weren't necessarily uh, ahead of the game on that, but it it really it varied by institution. But um, it's it's pretty certain. I think from the rise of like seven hundred percent viewership increase in museums across the globe, that they had some things in place. They they most definitely had some things in place, and it it varied from museum to museum. Mm-hmm. Also, you brought up a book, uh, The Digital Future of Museums, and I read some of that while I was preparing this show, and there was this feeling uh, that museums were really reexamining themselves, and uh, there was a discussion about best practices, and they got into some, some detail that was a little deeper than I usually go, but uh, right. maybe that sort of piggybacks what you were saying is, could you elaborate on the sort of the examination of what's the best practice for each museum probably would be different. Absolutely. I, I Again, I think um, just like um, different companies, you know, you can present a plan, you can issue research and hold conferences and introduce the the future of technology as it relates to an industry and it truly becomes a decision of those institutions to determine um, just how much they want to embrace. That's always been like the, you know, the piece of technology that I find very interesting is one of my first uh, jobs out of college, maybe my second job was working for IBM. And I moved to Manhattan and a part of their extensive four-month training entailed taking us to visit their research plant in Armonk, New York. And they began to show us all these different pieces of technology um, that were developed, ready to go, really, physically ready to go, but um, their holdup or their pause or their hesitation in introducing these new technologies to the general public was the knowledge that they had that it takes time for humans to catch up with technology. 
that we mm-hmm. we we embrace one piece of technology, and if you get something else too quickly, we're, we're hesitant. I mean, think about how some of our grandparents reacted to the microwave. So you know, there's these new <laughs> technologies, and I think that humans in general, we 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 need some time. We need a moment to uh, embrace new developments because they're they're so different. They're so new. They um, they give us a sense of vulnerability, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So in that aspect, I think it really depends on what these executive directors, what these vice presidents, what these leaders of the museum and galleries, um, what they think is best for the people that they're introducing it to and just how much they want to embrace it. And, again, cost, you know. So um, that's kind of my take on, you know, how they're making decisions, decisions, how sparse those decisions um, will be. That's right. Um, Meryl, also, we're talking about technology here, and uh, when we look at professional sports in particular, but we also see it at the collegiate level and elsewhere, new technology has been embraced by teams, you know, to uh, everything from sports medicine to uh, new play systems and that sort of thing. Um, I think... uh, we might we might like to think that that uh, sports is a little bit more um, ahead of the curve in terms of that, but I think now we're looking at the potential that sports we're not going to see the big crowds for quite a while. I was just looking at uh, the the NASCAR race from Darlington. I looked over the highlights and there's nobody in the stands. And some races are like that, but it was uh, I, you know then you juxtapose that to to say baseball or something. This is something that is going to be needed and is going to need to – I just wonder if um, the leagues are going to be able to embrace that. I, I agree, too. You know, and it's, it's sometimes it depends on the sport, too. Um, baseball in particular seems to be a sport – you know, it's, it's certainly an old sport, and they don't seem sometimes to be as regularly – interested or willing to embrace technology per se. I mean, let's face it. We still have managers and pitching coaches calling a bullpen phone, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than, than doing some sort of technology. So, I mean, there's certain things about sports that they seem unwilling to change, but, you know, I agree there's going to have to be um, changes in technology and, and things that, that they're going to have to do, um, to try to do this. I agree. I, I, you know, it just seems like as much as I would like to see sports back and it, it, certainly if, if they start, if they're, they're back on television again, I'll watch. I mean, I think most people will watch, but it's going to seem different. I just think it seems a little bit flat without um, they're, they're the cheering of the crowd. And, you know, I agree with you, you know, even it's, in any endeavor, it seems like when you're getting support or you're getting feedback from someone, um, it just makes the experience that much better. And, you know, you see a lot of times in sports, you know, they're pleading for the the crowd to interact and they want them to make noise and they want them, you know, and I, you know, it's just, it's going to seem different with that. And, you know, I had written in, in the, in my chapter in the book, you know, there, there are things that are certainly going to change. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, it. It's kind of been a sad 
interesting to see over the years, but it just seems more and more like athletes are less approachable than they were maybe, you know, 50 years ago or, you know, in that respect. And I think that's going to continue and probably even get a little bit worse. I mean, I, I think, you know, instead of having a crowd full of reporters in a clubhouse or a locker room, maybe we're doing Zoom meetings in that respect for them, the media be able to ask their questions and thing, things like that. Um, you know, I just don't see the accessibility, at least in the short term, being there and, and, and probably for for the right reasons. I mean, you know, you, you still don't need a huge crowd of people in a small area at this point until, you know, until we have the virus under control, I could certainly right. see things, things going that way. So, you know, yeah, I, I do think that they will be using technology in a different kind of way. You know, you know, it's, again, I think it's unfortunate that you just may not see um, things back to the way they once were. I mean, I, I don't think you're going to see athletes out doing you know, autograph signings before a game anymore, you know, or at least not to the degree that they used to, they probably won't be out in the public the way they were making, making, you know, social appearances and things like that. So, I mean, watching it in person and seeing it on television might be your only way of interacting with, with your, your favorite athletes and teams. Um, it'll, it, it certainly will be different than it, than it was. And, and, like I said, you know, I, I do think that they'll probably, as we all are, be using different forms of, of technology to, to do aspects of their jobs. You know, again, NFL meetings, you know, MLB meetings, are we going to do them by, by Zoom meetings now instead of having everyone crowd into a hotel and things like that? So, you know, I, I do think you're right. I think technology is going to play a role in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me into a question for each of you with a slightly different angle for each of it. Uh, we talk about uh, the economic side of things. Um, our publisher, Lawrence Knorr, uh, wrote from the economic standpoint and uh, went through a number of industries and businesses and, and the kind of changes that are going to happen. Um, Cheryl, you had discussed how major museums in New York, such as the Guggenheim, have had to cut salaries. They've had to furlough employees. And that's no different than any other business, but you know the Guggenheim maybe can afford that, but it's like we're looking at a lot of the smaller nonprofits. They may not have those reserves of cash. They may not recover, and that is something the, the economic picture is going to change for them, isn't it? Most definitely, um, and it, it, it's unfortunate, um, but there is hope, if you will, um, I've also definitely been paying attention to the fact that um, there are job openings at places, for example, like Smithsonian, for people who will raise money. So uh, a key piece to survival for these institutions is begin to find ways to uh, raise money. Um, mm-hmm. it, it may you may have to take um, a legislative angle and begin to um, employ people who will advocate for um, the survival of cultural institutions to petition to our state and local and federal government to continue to 
um, invest in cultural institutions that provide um, um, a much-needed educational experience for people. So now here's the time to push, 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 Kate, uh, for money in the public sector in in different ways. It's it's time to get really creative um, and fight, 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 fight for um, museums, whether short or small, historical societies, if you will, uh, all of those various type of institutions to let your voice be heard in America and around the world and let them know that you believe that your your historical society, your small museum in your small town is worth saving because of the importance and the vitality it brings to society. So this, this, is, this is what we have to do. And you see um, there are celebrities on TV and there are musicians and athletes all raising money for different causes. There's Jimmy Fallon at home. Every guest he has on since this quarantine is raising money for some good cause out there. So you got to get on. You got to get in the game. You got to get on the bandwagon, and you have to do take these same initiatives so that these type of institutions can remain intact. They're very important. They're very important, and these numbers showing just how many people jumped online to watch penguins walk through an empty you know, um, aquarium or to, mm-hmm. to to see other things. It was important for people. You know, I point in my chapter, I point out that um, I think because of this type of data, we now realize just how important um, the cultural and the artistic and the entertainment experience is to our to our comfort and our sanity and our safety, we found comfort in in those avenues. Mm-hmm. We we realized how much and how much, how important it was for our souls to feed off of arts and entertainment during this time. Um, and if we couldn't find the dog on it, we made up ways to entertain <laughs> ourselves and our neighbors. This is important to our society, um, which is why for just like we were when you're talking about stadiums. Heck, we've been gathering in large stadiums since the days of Athens, Athens, Greece. This is a part of our human experience. So it's a time when we must use our voices and employ others and advocate for um, for the survival of these institutions. Right. Meryl, we need to go to you now on that. Um, the money issue for sports, I'm wondering how much it's going to be there, but the I think what Cheryl was saying is that fascination and that need is still going to be there for sports as well. Um, I am wondering if there's still going to be the economic impact on sports with how much money is spent on it and that sort of thing, but I think... Uh, I think there's definitely going to be a need to get back to it. and But as I say, do you think the fascination will be there? Do you think the money is going to be there that uh, a lot of these players are making? I think in the end, I think your superstars are always going to, to be at a premium. And, and, you know, 
Are we going to see the $300 million contracts that we've seen here recently? I guess that remains to be seen. I, I think the need or the want for sports to come back is, mul- is a little multifaceted, too. Obviously, athletes want to comp- compete. I mean, that, that, they, they get into sports because of that reason initially. And I think even at the highest professional level, they want to compete. They don't want to be sitting at home. But let's be honest, too. I, I do think some of the push in terms of, let's just say, the NBA and the NHL, for example, I mean, the, 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 there's a real reality there that they're losing millions, if not billions of dollars, um, by these seasons being shortened or being being canceled and these games not being played. And, and they need to salvage some of that television revenue. So even if they're losing gate receipts in terms of people not being in the stands, I think part of the reason they want to get back, and especially as quickly as they do, is they do need to salvage some of that contract money through some of these television contracts that they have. So Mm -hmm. I I do think there's there's a revenue generation aspect to it. You know, don't get me wrong. Sports are always going. You know, competition is always the the main the main motivating factor. I believe. And you know, will we see the kind of salaries and the and the spending that we've seen in the past? Um, maybe, especially not in the short term. I, I I could certainly see that taking a hit. Um, I think it's going to be worse at, at maybe the amateur levels in terms of like colleges. I mean, I've already seen where some college athletic directors have said, you know, we're looking at up to a 30% or more reduction in revenue because of, yes. let's just say, the NCAA tournaments, the basketball tournaments being canceled. That was a significant portion of their overall revenue for all of their sports budgets. And for that to yes. no longer be there, um, you're, you're certainly going to be looking at programs probably being slashed. I've seen some of that already. And, you know, there's going to be staff reductions, salary reductions. So, I mean, it's going to have a rippling effect. There's no doubt about that. Um, You know, are people going to have the disposable income that they had prior to the pandemic to to buy season tickets, to to buy tickets to games on a regular basis? Again, probably not in the short term. So I think even professional sports and sports in general are going to have to be a little bit more frugal in terms of their spending, just like most other businesses are. Um, they're, they're certainly, I mean, when you talk about the, you know, the, the professional sports, I mean, you're talking an economy in and of itself there. I mean, you know, with the NFL bringing in $15 billion a year, the NBA is bringing in $8 billion a year. That's no small chunk of change. And, Um, You know, certainly if teams and leagues are are suffering because of that, I do think at some point that's going to affect player salaries as well. And, um, you know, we might not see some of these free agent contracts, you know, escalating the way they did in the past. Again, at least not in the short term. And again, some of these leagues that have um, um, salary caps, you know, some of that is being generated year to year by what the potential revenue is coming in from that sport. So certainly going into next year, you're going to see a massive loss of, of income. So it's certainly going to affect salary caps as well. So that, I mean, ultimately it's going to mean that teams can't spend as much as they, they had been spending. So, you know, and, and you're losing, you're losing all sorts of income and revenue through ticket sales, 
you know, through game day purchases, concessions, even the local municipalities are losing things like parking revenue and stuff like that. So it just really does have a trickle down effect. And certainly I do think economically it's, it's going to affect all aspects of sports. That's for sure. Okay. Well, in the time we have left, I'd like to each of you give us an idea of where we are. The one thing you think will come out of the pandemic that was not there before in terms of our future. Cheryl, you first. Wow. In terms of our future, hmm, that's a loaded question. Let me see. Uh, I think one thing I've observed is, because I'm really kind of a technology fan, and this is just overall, it's not specifically geared towards the museum industry or gallery and arts and entertainment, um, it's almost as if someone, you know, some deity somewhere pushed a fast-forward button and kind of thrusted us into the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't give us a chance to embrace change. And so one of the biggest things for me is how we, you know, how I visited IBM's uh, research plant and they told us, well, we don't introduce we slowly spoon feed new technology to the to the society because it, it takes them a minute. Well, we just had to put on our seat belts and go. And so, I think that a, we're going to see an advancement of utilizing various technologies that we did not anticipate seeing put to use for possibly another decade. Mm-hmm. And there's some good. There's some good. And there's some pros and cons with that. But I think that's one of the the biggest um, observations for me is new technologies uh, are here to stay. They're coming. And, you know, we just got a little fast forward button into our future jets in the area, uh, era of life. Um, and okay. um, I, 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 um, another observation is that um, – well. Actually, Cheryl, I apologize. We are running out of time. I want to give Meryl the last shot, and uh, I will bring us out. Thanks for that. Go ahead, Meryl. I I agree with Cheryl. I think technology is probably one of the biggest things. Um, I do think we may see the way people do their jobs certainly is probably changed, and you're starting to see that with some of the companies stating that, you know, from now on they're going to have employees doing things remotely or working from home. I I think we may see more of that trend in the future where, you know, maybe we don't need to have people gathered into an office setting the way they used to. But on a more simplistic terms, I think think a lot of people are just – once this this pandemic has passed us, I, I think we're going to look at the little things and not take things for granted the way maybe we have in the past. Um, right. Being able just to go to church or go someplace that, that you just want to go to or go to a ball game. Um, I, I don't think people would take that for granted as much as maybe we perhaps did in the past. All right. Very good. We will have to leave it there. Our guests today, Cheryl Brooks and Meryl Schaefer both of whom have offered their views in After the Pandemic, Visions of Life, Post-COVID-19, available at Sunbury Press Books, as well as Amazon and other online sellers. Thank you both for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tori. It was a pleasure. 
I'm Tori Gates, your host. Thank you for listening. This is the Book Speak Network. Mm-hmm.